God is more than good. The first thing I can tell you. Um, it's a blessing to be with Sam again. We never know the end of the story. God begins a train of events, if we are willing, and the effect of that goes on to eternity. And that's hard for us to grasp because we are finite. Um, When I think of meeting Sam for the first time out in the bush in Africa, uh, my sons and I had put together a youth mission trip And his uncle named Rodney, whom I had met, called me and told me about his nephew and uh, would I be willing to have him come. As I shared with your Rice students, I'm thrilled to have young people with me anywhere in the world we might go. And it doesn't matter what walk of life they are from, but there were only three criteria that I asked of Sam and the others. Because we are doing Christian ministry... I ask that they not consume alcohol, that they not smoke cigarettes, and that they restrain from having sex if they are not married. Those were the three requirements I had, and they were happy to agree with those. And as Sam joined us and some others who hadn't had a Christian experience, uh, we were thrilled to see the work that God did. And, And as the Holy Spirit worked in Sam's life, those of us that were there, we could only rejoice. We, we could see it was a natural outworking of God's power and Sam responding to that. And then as he decided to stay longer and go up into South Sudan with our sons, um, that was a bit apprehensive for me. It was apprehensive for me when my sons began that work. They went into a country that was in the middle of a civil war with bombs dropping, with landmines, with them being stopped and AK-47s being punched in their faces. The rebel soldiers trying to take over their truck, load all their grenade launchers and all their machine guns in the back of the truck, and then those young boys of 19, 18 years old negotiating with these rebel officers to get their truck back and to tell them, listen, We understand you're in a war, and we also understand that our presence here is for another matter. And these vehicles need to be used for something more important than your war. And to let Sam go up there when he was 19 with my sons, and it's one thing to allow your children, and uh, many people struggled with that, that we let our sons go into the middle of the Civil War when they were 17 and 18 years old. And yet, that was the work that God had for them to do. And then to let them take Sam and another young fellow from France up there, thinking of their safety, but knowing that God was working in Sam's life. Now, along with Jabel and Jared, I have a nephew named Caleb. And Caleb happened to go, after that mission trip, to Europe to speak at a youth conference. And while he was there, he met a young lady that's a close friend from Norway. And that young lady had her friend named Katie with her. And Katie was on her way to Arise. And when Caleb heard that, he, he said, we just sent Sam to go to Arise. And, and uh, I heard the story this weekend that when, when Jabel called David, who was at Arise, and said, I have a student for you, David said, I'm sorry, we're filled up. And Jabel said, David, I have a student for you. His name is Sam, and he will be coming to Arise. So 
David graciously opened his arms and he received Sam. Caleb had told Katie, when you get to Arise, look for my friend Sam. Well, you know what? Katie looked for Sam. <laughs> she looked for him. And she found him. And God continued the work in Sam's life. And those of you that are here know Sam and Katie. And who would have dreamed of years ago that this was God's plan? You know, there's a promise. Above the distractions of earth, God sits enthroned. All things are open to his divine survey, and from his great and calm eternity, he orders that which he sees best. We can trust ourselves to a God that can take in that scope. And he was working way back then for Sam's best interest, for Katie's best interest, but not only for their best interest, for the lives of the people that their lives will touch. The lives of the people that they will serve were going to be affected for eternity as a result of that. God has been exceedingly gracious to my family and I to allow us ministry opportunities and mission opportunities and miracles performed in our lives and the lives of others simply by being willing and trusting to obey him when he tells us something. Many people look at obedience to God as legalism. Have you heard that? Yeah. We think it's legal. It is the greatest joy. It is the greatest happiness. And it is the greatest good that can come to any of us when we're willing to hear God's voice and then say, Lord, help me to be willing to be made willing to be in harmony with you. Help me to let go. Sam mentioned that, that, that at 19 I had the privilege to start getting involved. At 18, was my first, I was the first time to hear... The gospel message it was my first time to be perhaps willing to hear the gospel message. I was an atheist. I was a pagan. I was a, a person that uh, was not very gracious at all. And God found access to me at that point in my life. And um, I just praised the Lord. He knew the timing. He knew what needed to happen. And within a month after I was baptized, uh, God opened the door for me to become what was then called the self-supporting Bible worker. Um, there was an evangelist in southern New England in the United States that had set up this concept of doing team evangelism, of having a group of young people working with him as he did evangelism. But the conference could pay the evangelist, but they couldn't pay this team. And so you had to find a place to work in the community to earn some money to support yourself and then do Bible studies and then go to the meetings in the evening and do cooking schools and do five-day plans to stop smoking and do all kinds of you know, wonderful activities. And so the pastor that had baptized me uh, was going to do an evangelistic series in his other church, and he asked me to come help. And then the pastor that was doing the meetings had accepted a call to be a conference evangelist. And he wanted us to put together, he wanted to put together this team, this ministry team. And um, I met my wife at my baptism. The weekend I was baptized was the weekend I met Joyce. Well, the pastor that baptized me also invited Joyce to come, because she seemed to be available from another state, to help with this evangelistic series. And then we worked with this other evangelist who was putting together this concept of team evangelism, and off we went. Well, that evangelist was named Mark Finley. Some of you may have known Mark or heard of Mark, and he's had the privilege to, to uh, preach God's word around the world. So... All my adult life, essentially, most of it, if you can call me an adult yet, some people 
reserve that term for more mature people. But for the last 36 years, we've had this joy to be involved in ministry. And God has opened the way for us to travel literally around the world. Um, and, and that's been a blessing. And it's been the most wonderful journey. I don't have time and won't bore you with the whole thing. But uh, we've seen God work marvelously. You know, we've had the privilege to build churches in Mongolia. In fact, uh, last time they were mentioned in the de- back of the Sabbath school quarterly, I looked at it, and it told how many churches there are in Mongolia, and I looked at my son, and I said, hey, bud, you know, we built half the churches in Mongolia. <laughs> There's four of them. <laughs> and Frontline Builders, that's the name of the NGO we created for Jay. Well, we had, had the privilege to go there and build, too. And more recently, I've had the joy of being involved in health ministries in a part of the world where Christians are illegal. In the countries we go into, and there's not one Christian that is a national. There's foreigners who are Christians, but there are no nationals who are Christians because it's against the law, and it's very, very dangerous at the cost of your life to convert and to become a Christian. And to work in the midst of these communities and to serve them has been a great privilege, the most wonderful opportunity to see God opening the, oper- the, the doors to have relationships, to build friendships, and to enter into spiritual engagement with people who have never really heard the name of Jesus. They've never had the opportunity to consider the, the truths of God, the, the character of God in the way that we have. Uh, this afternoon, I'll be able to share more of that. This morning, I want to turn our thoughts at least momentarily, to some scripture that has spoken to me in a new way, in a a deeper way. Uh, With the Arise students, we've been reading 1 Corinthians 13, uh, the two mornings we've been together. Do any of you know what 1 Corinthians 13 is about? All right. Some of you raise your hand. About love. You know, and it talks about that I could have all gifts, But if I have not love, I am what? I'm nothing. I could speak in tongues. I could have knowledge. I could have prophecy. I could give my clothes to the poor. I could give my body to be burned. But without love, it's what? It's nothing. It's nothing. Now, in this children's story, I was so pleased. The concept, the idea, the promise of eternal life was mentioned. Is eternal life a topic that should be of interest to us? You're nodding your heads. You know, innately, even before I was a Christian, and since being a Christian and traveling many places in the world with many, many different faiths, people that are atheists, people that are, have no religion at all, when it comes to death, I have not found anybody in the world that welcomes death. Your experience may be different, but I haven't found anybody that thinks death is a good thing. Innately. Humanity knows, we understand, we were made to live forever. Do you believe that? We were made to live forever. That's God's plan for us. It's a a concept, it's a theme that is worthy of our interest. And in Luke chapter 10, starting with verse 25, um, no, I'm lying. I'm in 10. Yes, starting with verse 25. We have a very familiar story, a true story. 
there was somebody interested in eternal life. It was a lawyer, a certain lawyer. He was a doctor of the law. Now, today when I say lawyer, do you have an image of that person, what a lawyer is? That is different than this lawyer. This man was a doctor of the law. What law was he a doctor of? Okay, God's law. It wasn't, you know, we're not, we're not talking about real estate lawyers or tax lawyers or, no, divorce lawyers. We're talking about a man who was a doctor of God's law. He studied God's law. And he comes to Jesus, and it says, He stood up and tempted him, saying, Master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Is that a good question? Would you like to know what to do to inherit eternal life? Now, let me tell you, this, young, this, this man understood some things clearly, very clearly, intellectually. He didn't say, what must I do to earn eternal life? What must I do to what? Inherit eternal life. What do you do to inherit anything? All right, you're shaking your heads. What do we do to inherit anything? Nothing. But to inherit something, somebody must die. Would you agree? You can't inherit anything unless somebody dies and then you inherit that. And this guy is asking, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus, of course, as you know the story, he says, well, what do you read in the law? What's writ- You're a doctor of the law. What's written in the law, and how do you understand it? And the lawyer says, love the Lord your God with all your strength, with all your mind, with all your soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. He cuts through everything else in Scripture. He narrows it down to ex- the truth, the core This is the core, and he can narrow it down to the very core. And what does Jesus tell him? It's written right there. What does he tell him? Yeah. Do this, and you shall live. Do it, and you will live. What was the question? What's the original question? How do I get eternal life? Jesus says, do this, and you will live. How long will he live? Okay, thank you. We're talking about eternal life. Do this and you will have eternal life. And the man struggles. And he's trying to find a way to justify himself. Why is he trying to find a way to justify himself? (laughs) Thank you, he's a lawyer. Thank you, Sam. Why do you want to justify yourself? What, What would provoke someone to want to justify themselves? Okay, pride. If you are in harmony, if, if, if you are in harmony, if you're doing what you should be doing, is there a need for you to justify yourself? No. He wanted to justify himself because in his heart he knew, I'm not loving the Lord my God with all my strength, with all my soul, with all my mind, with all, and I'm not loving my neighbor as myself. And so he wanted to justify himself. And what was his question? Ah, who? Who's my neighbor? Now, 
Sam helped me out. He's gonna, in many ways, but he's going to find out soon uh, one way he helped me out. Um, for the Jews, we can't fully appreciate this story because of our cultural setting, because of our political setting. If we could place ourselves in the time with Jesus and in the social dynamics that were happening when Jesus told this story, we would get so much more from it. Um, and we'll try to get more than what we have. For the Jews, the world initially was divided into two groups. What were they? Okay, so you knew that answer very well. Jews and Gentiles. That's what humanity does. Humanity, left to itself, becomes very exclusive. It's a natural reaction, and especially in the spiritual realm, in the religious realm, the exact same thing happens, and we're going to see that very pointedly. There were Jews and there were Gentiles. In the Seventh-day Adventist world, there are only two groups of people. There are Adventists and there are... Don't, write, don't, don't resist. Thank you. Sam got up here and he said, at the time I was a non... See? You see how simple it is? This came clear to me as I was president of OCI. I had a, an accountant who was a Baptist. And we became close friends as our friendship grew. Tom grew comfortable. He grew safe in our friendship. And one day he said, he just let loose. He says, man, what is it with you Adventists? You say, oh, that guy there, he's a non-Adventist. This person here, they're a non-Adventist. What in the world is a non-Adventist, will you tell me? He says, I'm a Baptist. We don't go around and say, oh, see that lady over there? She's a non-Baptist. A non-Baptist. He says, what are you people thinking? Boy, did that hit me. Okay? Without being, without intending it, simply by natural reaction, we became very exclusive. When we saw the world black and white, you're either an Adventist or a non-Adventist. Adventist or non-Adventist. And those are the only two groups. And we cannot navigate until it's clear to us. If I tell you I did an evangelistic series and we had, I'm not like David, you know, I don't get hundreds, you know, maybe 48 people show up. We had 48 people at our meetings, three nights in a row. What do you want to know? Thank you. I have a young son. Well, he's not so young. He's 30 years old. He's one of the boys Sam was talking about. He's single. I didn't say he's eligible. I told him to rise. He's single. And I tell you, you know, hey, David, Jared's met this young lady in Kenya. She's, she's just a wonderful girl. She's got a missionary spirit. She loves the Lord. She wants to do mission work. What do you want to know? Not me. Oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> he's not going to take that one. But you know what everybody I talk to wants to know? Is she? Thank you. And they can't move any two feet forward until they know if... Now, there is no young lady interested in my son. That, that, that lady, that, that doesn't exist. That's simply an illustration. So you're advertising. Yes, advertising. No, his mother advertises. <laughs> his mother has a greater burden for that than I do. But my point is, you see how our thinking is. We are very much in the same condition as were the people Jesus was speaking to. How we view the world affects how we view ourselves. How we view ourselves affects how we see the world. And this is where Jesus was seeking 
to assist the people with this story. He was trying to break barriers down. In, in the lawyer's mind, his question about who's my neighbor, forget the Gentiles. They are not my neighbors. They're unclean, they're heathen, they're cursed of God. I don't even have to think about them being my neighbors. His question really was, amongst the household of God, who is my neighbor? So Jesus doesn't enter into controversy. He simply tells a story about a man who was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. And as he went down, the Bible says he fell among the thieves, which descended upon him, stripped him, beat him up, left him for half dead. And as Jesus is telling the story, this is not some, some just simple parable. The participants are listening to what Jesus said. The people knew this incident had taken place. And so a Levite comes along. And he seizes the man. And he passes by on the other side. Or maybe first it was the priest. At any rate, we, we, we get the dynamics where a priest went by, a Levite went by. And as they went by and looked at the man, what did they do? Okay. Now, you see, we know the story. They did not know the story. We are conditioned because we know the story. We know what should have happened. But the people listening to Jesus, so far, so good. The priest did what was appropriate. The Levite did what was appropriate. They shouldn't get involved in this. They work in the temple. If they touch this man, they will become unclean. And they're going to have to go through this ceremonial washing, which is quite burdensome, in order to get clean again. So this is okay. This is, this is as it should be. The priest and the Levite should pass by on the other side. And then Jesus says one word, and we cannot fully appreciate what happened to the people in their gut when Jesus said that word. And that word was... Samaritan. And then a Samaritan. As soon as he said it, it's like taking your fingernails on a chalkboard, you know, and, just, oh, just, and everybody's just cringing. These are the most despised people to the Jews. Samaritans are worse than dogs. They heap their worst curses upon the Samaritans. When Jesus met the Samaritan lady at the well and asked her for a drink, what did she say? How is it you being a Jew ask of me, a woman of Samaria, for a drink? What are you thinking? When the priests and the Pharisees were getting ready to, to kill Jesus, they were so angry at him. The worst insult they could lay upon Jesus was, did we not say rightly that you have a devil and you are a Samaritan? That was the most derogatory term they could come up with. So when Jesus said the word Samaritan, he got their attention. And all the attention was a negative emotional reaction in their hearts when they heard the word Samaritan. What was the major difference between the Jews and the Samaritans? Do you know? What was the major contention? Religious beliefs. Religious beliefs. Remember, Jesus said to the lady, the lady said, hey, we worship. And Jesus said, no, you're supposed to worship. You Samaritans, you don't know what you worship. We 
know what we worship. No question. It was about worship. It was about religious beliefs. That was the main contention between the Jews and the Samaritans. When the priest and the Levite went by and they looked at this guy, they said, you know what? He might be a Samaritan. Might be a Samaritan. He wasn't. He was a Jew. Did the two resemble each other physically? Yeah. You couldn't really tell by looking if a person was a Jew or a Samaritan. The contention was over religious practice and religious belief. I've never hated anybody like the Jews hated the Samaritans. See, that's why I can't fully appreciate the story. I've never had inbred hatred in me, okay? This, if you read, have you heard the book Desire of Ages? Any of you? I just invite you to read this chapter. It is so wonderful in, in that book. It says, the scribes and the Pharisees, the priests and the Levite, had been trained in the school of national bigotry. Isn't that great? I just love it. They were trained in the school of national bigotry. Where'd you get your degree? Oh, I got my degree at the school of national bigotry. Okay? Well, nobody's going to say that, but that was the school they were trained in. And their national bigotry, their religious exclusiveness, set them apart. And they felt very comfortable despising the Samaritans. And Jesus said the Samaritan came along. The Samaritans' doctrines were poor. Okay? Let's, let's not negate that fact. The Jews had the oracles of God. The Samaritans' doctrines were terrible. Mixed of truth and error. But the Samaritan comes along, and when he sees the man, the Bible says he was moved with compassion. Okay? Have you ever, we have a, we studied the 27, 28 now fundamental beliefs. Have you studied the fundamental belief of compassion? When you had your baptismal vows, was the doctrine of compassion included in those? No. Why? It's not a doctrine we thought was worth the priority of putting in there. Do you know what, have you ever felt compassion? Okay. What happened to the Samaritan? The Samaritan walked along and when he got there and he saw that man, he could not take another step. He could not turn around and walk down the road and leave that man. He couldn't. It was impossible for him. The compassion he experienced made him stay right where he was and at the risk of his own life, minister to this guy. He couldn't go on. If he could have, he would have. But the compassion made him stay there. And he took his oil, he took his wine, and he very gently and very tenderly bound up that man's wounds gently put him on his own beast and carefully took him to a place of safety. The Samaritan stayed up with him all night long. He watched over the man. He tended to the man. And when he was convinced this guy is going to be okay, then he was willing to go on with his own personal business and go on with his journey. And he went to the innkeeper and said, here's what is I owe you. Here's some more money. And if you use more than what I'm giving you, when I come back, I'll pay you the rest. Take care of this man. Now, this is amazing, folks. The Samaritan knew 
that were their places reversed, if he was stripped half naked, beaten half dead, and laying there, this Jew would have come along, looked at him, spit in his face, and carried, his, carried on. The Samaritan knew that would have been his treatment. But despite that, the Samaritan could do nothing different than what he did. He had to stop. He had to take care of this man. There was another human being in dire need, and I cannot leave him here. Jesus then turns to the lawyer and said, which of these was neighbor to him that fell among the thieves? The lawyer can't bear to take the word Samaritan on his lips. He cannot say the Samaritan was his neighbor. Forget about it. He said, he that showed mercy, he that showed mercy. And Jesus says, you go and do this. Go and do this. If the lawyer does what Jesus says, what will he have? Thank you, David. The original question is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your soul, and your neighbors yourself. Then we go through this experience. The question is the same. The answer is the same. Go and do thou likewise. And I agree with David, and you'll have eternal life. So what did the Samaritan have? Thank you. That was unbelievable to the group Jesus was talking to. How could the Samaritan, with messed up doctrines, have eternal life? How could the Samaritans, confused, in Babylon, scorned by God, People that deserve the curse of God, how could a Samaritan possibly have eternal life? It's incomprehensible. They could not believe that the Samaritan had eternal life. Did he? Of course he did. Jesus said it. Jesus implies that. The Samaritan showed himself truly converted. He was obeying God's law. Now, that's a stretch for us, okay? He was worshiping in the wrong place. He was worshiping the wrong things. His doctrines were all messed up. How could we say he was converted? How can we say that he was in harmony with God? Well, he was because Jesus demonstrates that he was. See? How we look at others, how we look at ourselves, they reflect one upon the other. The Bible text in the bulletin is about is Revelation 18. It's talking about Babylon. And God is saying, come out of her, who? My people. They're his people. As we mingle with others, as we look at others, as we serve others, how do we see them? Do we see them as God's people? Or are they non-Adventists? 
it is such a part of our thinking. It is such a part of who we have become. And I believe God wants to rescue us from this. The, the Samaritan, um, I'm going to use a modern day term, he was a very effective medical missionary. I'm heavily involved. We've been heavily involved in medical missionary work all our adult lives around the world. We just spent five years in Portugal building a lifestyle center and a school of health promotion. When we go into countries that don't allow Christians, we go in as medical missionaries. We go in and we do health ministries, and it opens up doors and it breaks down barriers. And, and I see this guy taking out his oil and his wine and cleaning the wounds and bandaging him up and caring for him. He's a, he was a great medical missionary. Now, you know what did not happen to the Samaritan's thinking? I can tell you something that he did not think. He did not think, okay, this guy needs help, and I'm going to help him. And, and as I care for him, and as I reveal to him the type of person I am, maybe he'll want to become a Samaritan. Just maybe. Right? Now we laugh. Okay? That was not on the Samaritan's agenda. When we go out and do medical missionary work, are we doing disinterested benevolence? Are we serving people simply because they're our brothers and sisters? They're fellow human beings? They're our, they're our neighbors? And we're happy just to lavish our love and our kindness upon them just because they exist? Or do we have an agenda that we're helping them and we're doing this and we're providing on this because maybe, just maybe, when I get done helping them, what? Yeah, maybe they'll want to come and be an Adventist like me. God needs to purify us, folks. He needs to transform our hearts. He needs to make us like the Samaritan. We need to look at humanity and see the need and be willing to throw ourselves into it simply because the need is there. But it's only going to happen one way. That love that we read about in 1 Corinthians, that love that says right here, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, and love your neighbors yourself, that is the gift that comes totally from outside ourselves. And when I read this, and I, when I read 1 Corinthians 13, it lays any goodness, any glory, any concept I have about something positive about Kim Busel into the dust. Because I see that I don't represent that. And then God can do for me what I can't do for myself. We cannot manufacture love. I can't love David by trying. I can't love Sam by trying. Maybe Violetta can. You know, she's had a lot, many more years of practice with, with, with the guy than I have. Okay? We're not going to develop this love by trying. There's only one way it's going to happen. It's going to happen if I'm willing to receive it from its source. The Samaritan's heart was open. To God. The Samaritan's heart was open to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And he allowed God to work in him. And as God worked in him, the Samaritan had compassion. And he could risk his life for the well-being of a fellow human being. With no thought of any personal gratification or reward. It was what is termed disinterested benevolence, to give of yourself for the well-being of others. That is the work I believe God is calling us to. That is the, the great opportunity 
of our lives if we are willing? And that's the question. The Samaritan revealed Jesus. Okay? Unequivocally, unashamedly, he revealed who Jesus Christ is. He revealed what God is like. Will we be willing for that to happen to us? With our students, I shared a promise that's been very precious to me over the years. It's in the book, Thoughts of the Amount of Blessing. It says, God has made provision that we may become like unto him. And he will accomplish this for all who do not interpose a perverse will and thus frustrate his grace. This is a work that God is willing to do for us. In singing, we sang, everybody ought to know. What should everybody know? Everybody ought to know what? Who Jesus is. I agree. Everybody. God's plan is that the message of his love, of his goodness, of his compassion will go to every nation, tongue, kindred, and people. That's his plan for us as a church to be used by him to encircle the globe with this message. Everybody ought to know who Jesus is. May we receive a willingness to let God work in us that we might be transformed by his grace that we can become like the Samaritan. That we might have the gift of eternal life like the Samaritan had it. And then we will demonstrate to the world what the Samaritan demonstrated to the Jews. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to thank you for your word. I want to thank you for the power of your spirit, for the blessings you bestow upon us. And Father, this morning I confess freely of my great need. I pray to be willing to be made willing to surrender up myself, my selfishness, my sin, my own way and my own thoughts and to receive from you the gift of eternal life. I pray for each one here, Lord, through the ministry of your spirit, through your angels. May you speak to each one of us. May you help us to be willing to be made willing to give our lives completely and unreservedly to you, that you may use us to be a blessing in this world. Make us like Jesus, our Savior. I pray in his name, amen.